Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, Subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Readers all over the world are buying books about epidemics right now. Sales of Albert Camus' 1947 novel, The Plague, have tripled in Italy. They're up in the UK and in France. Stephen King's 1978 novel, The Stand, about a killer virus, saw a 58% increase in online sales last month. And among scholars of literature, some of the classics of Western writing, like Boccaccio's famous collection of stories, The Decameron, which are set in a time of plague, are drawing renewed and indeed almost obsessive attention. Maybe we're turning to books for answers that we can't get from scientists and politicians. Or maybe we're trying to find another way to make sense of our world. We also might be just trying to get out of it and escape. To discuss the literature of pandemics and what we can learn from it, I knew I wanted to hear from Marta Figlerovich. Marta is an associate professor of comparative literature and of English at Yale University. It's not just that Marta has read every book there is to read. It's that she's consistently clear and at the same time profound in her thinking about literature and how it affects the way we think 
and experience the world. Marta, thanks for agreeing to talk to me. And our general topic is literature in the time of corona. I want to start by just asking you, how irritated are you by this question? I mean, have we already entered the realm of cliche in this subject? That's a funny question. I think if we get to Boccaccio in the next five minutes, then yes. <laughs> then hopefully we're going to go somewhere else. Um, and thank you again for inviting me to participate. I mean, in, in some sense, it's my parents are both scientists and they're very much involved in the COVID effort in Poland. Um, so in some sense, I have been feeling a humanist's sense of futility for the past few weeks. I'm like, oh, my mother is on national TV again talking about a case. And here I am reading the collected Goethe. So I think in some ways the Boccaccio is a joke, but in another sense, the joke is on us humanists because it raises the perpetual question of in times of crisis, what does literature do exactly? Um, both literature kind of dug up from the past to help us persist and also any literature that might come out of this moment. At the risk of then diving into cliche, because you brought it up, I want then to just ask you, maybe only very briefly, about this classic work of literature, Boccaccio's Decameron, composed in the aftermath of the 1347-48 plague throughout Europe, but in particular in Florence. Why do you think that becomes everybody's go-to COVID literary reference? I was actually speaking about this to an Italian scholar a couple of days ago, and what he said, and I agree with this, is that Boccaccio captures something about quarantine that is about recreation in two different senses. Kind of on the one hand, quarantine is all about kind of figuring out what society might turn out to be once kind of everybody emerges and some people have died and the economy and politics will have shifted in ways that we cannot as yet imagine. But then in addition to that lofty sense of recreation, there's also the less lofty sense of recreation. Meaning of quarantine is all about dailiness, overwhelming your life. It's all about thinking about the very large scale within the confines of something that is kind of much smaller even than your regular professional life or regular everyday life. That huge difference in scales between the banality of what will I make for breakfast and how long will it be until the peak hits? I think that's something Boccaccio captures quite well. And that's something that the pathos of the stories, which are kind of charming and funny, but also often profoundly sad, in this very quickly developed, rapidly ending way. Kind of, there's something about the stories that also captures the shortness of every person's life and also kind of how easily a life can be turned into a twist in a tale that will then take you through maybe 10 minutes of quarantine. Marta, you said that as a humanist, you were asking yourself, you know, what do we have to contribute? And it seems to me the answer is a whole lot because it's humanists who are interested in how we process our experiences. Yes, yeah. What writers or ideas are helping you to process the strange experiences that we're in now? Well, one thing I've been thinking about a lot is the work of Vasily Grossman, who is a relatively lesser known Russian author who lived in the time of the Soviet period, was then exiled to Armenia because uh, the Soviet government at first really liked his novels and then suddenly turned against them. And a lot of what he tries to write about is kind of experiences of war and siege. I mean, his big novel, Stalingrad, is about the siege of Stalingrad. 
And here again, it's all about kind of different temporalities coming together, kind of the temporality of waiting for the Germans to come in the siege of Stalingrad. And then the rapidity with which everybody in the novel, spoiler alert, kind of rapidly dies in the siege. And he has that amazing book called Everything Flows, which is about a man who comes back from the Gulag to his home village. And it's this encounter between a man who has experienced something unimaginable for over a decade and is suddenly back in a town that is, on the one hand, exactly the way it used to be, and on the other hand, kind of completely different. And he can't figure out how to re-enter it. And I've been thinking about those books in part because of the question of, kind of how do you begin again? And what does it mean to kind of leave the house and resume life after all of this has happened? So those are two bookend ideas that you're, you're finding there. The first is the waiting idea that we're sitting around, we know something bad is almost certainly going to happen. We know it can involve death. And we're just sitting here. The other end of the bookend is what will happen afterwards. Yes. What about the in-between? I think in the in-between, one thing I've been thinking about as an academic and a writer is kind of how the monastic ideal of the solitary writer is such a lie. I mean, even monasteries are usually full of people. Um, That's the point of a monastery. You have a lot of people who have nothing else to do but pray and talk to you. And I think one thing I've been thinking about is just universities and how much as we scholars fetishize the notion of getting to go away on sabbatical, which is where COVID currently finds me, there's also kind of the beauty of getting to go talk to people. And so many of our best ideas actually happen in conversation with people in a way that yeah, just makes this myth of disappearing into yourself to come up with a magnum opus seem all the more like a kind of romantic, individualist mirage. And the other thing I've been thinking about is just the realist novel and its capacity to think about the everyday and make us notice the everyday. I think it's no accident that we're all reading very long novels, or at least everybody I know has been reading very long novels. And it's not just to pass the time, which is why novels used to be long in the first place back in the day because you had to go off into the countryside and it would be winter. There would be only one neighbor to talk to. A horse right away. So what were you going to do? You're going to read the long Dickens novel. But there's also something about them that celebrates that dailiness. And sometimes, as in Flaubert, is really pessimistic about it and treats it as this thing that will eventually grind you down but also kind of makes you realize that most of your life does actually happen within your house in a certain sense. And the people whom you touch most intimately are often the people whom you live with. And I think in that sense, the genres like the poem or the novel that kind of try to get you back into that place um, are kind of precious in a very different way. Because rather than kind of getting us back into this place of contemplation. They kind of accompany us in what has become constant contemplation of the living room and then the kitchen and the living room again. That's super interesting to me because my instinct before you said that was sort of like the point that you were initially making, I think in part to disparage it, namely that one reason we might feel able to take on long novels is that the pace of our lives feels different. But I think you were saying sort of the opposite. I think you were saying that that's not what's going on, that it's really has to do more with the idea of 
a novel about our inner worlds and our inner lives corresponds to the fact that we are stuck in our rooms. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And in that sense, it's also making me appreciate at least how much Beckett is engaged with realism in a very serious way. Kind of for all his absurdity and absurdism, it's actually just like the slowing down of realism to his ultimate degree. When you think about the Beckett of the long novels, which are all about a person slowly losing mobility, there's Molloy, where Molloy initially has a bike, and then he loses the bike, and then he goes lame in one foot, and then in both feet, and by the end of the novel, he's just like crawling somewhere, sort of forgetting where it was he was crawling to in the first place. And then Malone dies, which is about a character who may or not may not be related to the characters of Molloy, lying in bed, dying, trying to write his diary of being stuck in this room, occasionally getting food, and he keeps dropping his pencil. So a lot of the novel is just about, like, I found my pencil again. It has been two weeks since I have seen my pencil. Here it is again, so I will write about the last two weeks. You make it seem so thrilling. (laughs) It's fascinating. Marta, what about escapism and the novel? One of the experiences that most of us have when reading novels is to not be where we are. It seems especially valuable when you can't get out of the place where you, in fact, are. Are there any escapist novels that seem to you particularly suitable to the moment? Well, I think it depends to me on what you mean by escapism, um, because I often find that what I initially think of as escapism is actually something like a parallax, meaning it doesn't so much get me out of reality, but it transposes it by a couple of degrees so I can think about it a little bit more freely which is what daydreaming often is fundamentally. And when we daydream, it's not like we're coming up with something from scratch. Like, what would that even mean? It's like we're trying to imagine a version of the people we know and the lives we know in a different country or from a different perspective or with a slightly different balance of power. When COVID first hit, I found myself obsessively thinking about the zombie movies of Romero, particularly the one that takes place in the supermarket, Dawn of the Dead, which is all about kind of the fascination of going into the supermarket and being like, oh, I could survive here forever if I could only get the zombies out. And then they do get the zombies out and then they collapse because they can't agree with each other. And I think it's not accidental that like a lot of other people I know were looking to the dystopian literature of surviving in scarce resources. Like most of the children I know and I've been hearing about during the epidemic have been making little self-isolation forts in the living room, which is sort of adorable. And you would think they would be doing something else, (laughs) like imagining, like, I don't know, like huge villas or world travel. But no, it's always, like, I am in this tiny place. We have three pieces of bread. Let's share them together. I love that zombie movies come to your mind as a mode of escapism. My instinctive reaction to that is to say that, yes, I recognize the form of escapism that just changes things by a few degrees. And I also identify that very much with science fiction as the genre where you just tweak a few part, a few assumptions and you get something different out of it. What about the form of escapism, though, that at least on the surface isn't just tweak a few things, but is move yourself to an entirely different environment? I mean, it's sort of radical escapism. I mean, for, so for me, if I am at my lowest point, if I open Conan Doyle, you know, and I'm at 221B Baker Street, I am instantaneously in escape. And that's not because my life is just a few 
twists and turns away from those of, you know, Holmes and Watson. It's it's so radically disjunct from my world. And that's a a different form, I think, of escapism, where you literally want to just get out of your head. I don't want to think about what's going on. I want to think about something completely different. Right. And I'm not going to psychoanalyze that, although I'm very tempted to. Oh, go for it. (laughs) No, just in the sense that kind of the crime narrative and the clue narrative is also the fundamental form of imagining control Mm -hmm. and imagining that the world is actually legible. And if you only look for enough clues and put them together, it's all going to be okay. And everything's going to be clear again. You can send me a bill. I mean, that's a, that's a great psychoanalytic insight of why I love mystery novels. They embody the fantasy of putting it all together and making sense of it and then being in control again. We'll be back in just a moment. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. NA member FDIC. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. 
So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Magical Realism got the first Corona shout out. It has to have been within a couple of days of people starting to talk about socialization. Everyone was saying, love in the time of Corona, love in the time of Corona. And I remember the first person who texted that to me, I thought, oh my God, this person is the cleverest person I've ever met. And then very quickly, I realized that, you know, the hive mind had thought of this. And I don't know if anyone's actually out there reading Marquez now, but there is something about the kind of slowing of pace in magical realism and something about the slight tweaks to the world that does seem just almost intuitively appropriate for the moment. Right, and it's also funny because kind of the question of the collective in magical realism is also interesting because on the one hand, it's about the individual author's imagination. On the other hand, it's about juxtaposing certain traditions that are non-imperialist Western traditions and bringing them into the world of the novel, kind of showing that the novel doesn't have to be realist in the sense that, say, the 19th century British and French novel imagine it to be. And how does that angle kick in here? Because I, I have this instinct that one of the weirdest things about COVID is that people in, broadly speaking, the rich West or North, or call it whatever you wish, are accustomed in our era to thinking of pandemics as things that happen all the time to other people. Zika in Latin America or Ebola in Africa or earlier versions of SARS in China. So if you think of Marquez or something like that, you're thinking of, again, non-Western, quote-unquote, literature as the more contemporary literature of pandemic. Yeah, talking about it in terms of past and present and future is always fascinating to me in part because like, I don't quite identify with that Western subjectivity, I guess as a Polish person. And because part of my impetus for moving to the United States those 15 years ago now was because I kind of wanted to live in the future. I kind of didn't want to wait until gay rights were okay at some point in the future in Poland. So I thought I could kind of jump a decade, and that's how it felt at first. And how does it feel now, especially with reference to the pandemic? Is it a, There's a sort of flattening. We're all sort of in the same situation. Yes, and I think there's a kind of big difference in kind of what kinds of memories this brings back. Because my family in Poland, I find myself talking to them a lot about my grandmother's memories of the war, which for her, and for a lot of the people I know who are the people who survived, was all about trying to wait it out. And occasionally having something very dramatic happen, which would become the story that you told to people, that most of the time you were just kind of trying to be in the potato field when the planes came and not to be seen. Yes, I think it's weird and interesting what kinds of transgenerational memories that brings up and what parts of my heritage it makes me feel close to. Because in some senses, it's been making me feel kind of more connected to a certain part of my Eastern Europeanness that I have been in a while. It is really, really interesting that the experience of waiting is a common thread. You know, we're waiting for something and we're sort of hoping to, hoping to get through it to the other side. Yeah. Camus is my last topic to bring up. I mean, I think then we've hit all the, the big three of the corona literature discussion. 
Have you heard or read anything or thought of anything around the Camus that was of value or of interest? I think I've been thinking about Camus in great part in relation to the notion of the plague as a time of trial, meaning kind of people's real character comes out and what it means for that to be, quote unquote, your real character. Like emergencies certainly bring to the foreground certain parts of ourselves and they're valuable parts of ourselves. But how do they relate to the rest of reality? Um, I've been reading in my World War II phase of my COVID reading, I've been reading Jean Genot's Occupation Journal. Um, he's a French novelist. It's a journal from the occupation of France um, by the Germans, which is coming out in its first English translation. And one of the things he meditates about is kind of what those situations of emergency do to people. And he says there are some people who think they're really strong and then the occupation shows them to be weak. And then there are people who have always imagined themselves to be weak. But a situation of crisis actually shows them to be unconsciously very strong. And then he says there's the third kind of person, which, surprise, surprise, is most valuable of all, who just stay true to themselves and who are able to act in a crisis the way they would in an everyday situation. And that's another thing I guess I've been wondering about, kind of in relation to the kind of existentialist view of COVID, which is kind of what are we to do with what it makes of us? And how do we, on the one hand, kind of allow ourselves to think seriously about the things it forces us to think about, like socioeconomic inequality, like our own lives, our own choices, without succumbing to the fallacy of kind of everything I think in a period of isolation is true, or everything I do in this moment is the essential part of me. And probably those answers will be different to different people. Marta, thank you very, very much for the conversation. I really, I learned a huge amount as always. It's so fun to talk to you. My pleasure. Listening to Marta really brought home to me two pretty different aspects of our inner experiences of sitting at home and reading books during Corona. On the one hand, there's the individual experience. Marta talked about being Polish, coming to the United States, and how that affects her experiences in engaging with literature and with ideas. Each of us has our own individual path to follow. And indeed, our conversation about existentialism puts the individual's judgment and the individual's ability to make a choice front and center in our experiences. Yet at the same time, Marta also brought home that there's a universal, collective experience that we're undergoing in relation to the coronavirus. And literature is a mechanism whereby we collectively process and think about experience. Books are meant to be read by more than one person. They're ways of engaging the world that are shared at least between the writer and the reader, and ideally of many more people as well. Our collective life experiences are being shaped by Corona. We're alone, but we're alone together. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zui Nguyen. Mastering is by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com Feldman. 
To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.